21st chapter of John is our scripture text. <laughs> 21st chapter of John, verse 1. After these things, Jesus was manifested, or Jesus manifested himself, made himself visible again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he made himself visible in this way. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus therefore said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, Not a single one. No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find a catch. They cast therefore, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. The disciple therefore whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And so when Simon heard that, it was the Lord. He put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out upon the land, they saw charcoal fire already laid, and fish placed on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. And Simon Peter went up and threw the net to land full of large fish. A hundred and fifty-three, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus came and took the bread and gave them, and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Lord, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. When Adolf Eichmann was being tried for his atrocities against the Jews, they kept him in a bulletproof glass compartment and communicated to him with a microphone. On one occasion, a reporter asked him, Mr. Eichmann, do you believe in God? 
And his answer is an answer that many of us perhaps have at least felt and some have expressed. He said, yes, I believe in God, but I don't believe that God is concerned about little folks like you and me. We've all felt that, I guess, from time to time. And that's what makes the 21st chapter of John so wonderful. For it is the wonderful discovery of the risen Lord and the kind of care and love He has for His people. It reveals, it, dis, it shows us the extent of the love and care of the risen Lord. Now there are three incidents in this passage. The first, He's giving instructions to fishermen about fishing. In the second, He's fixing breakfast for His disciples and serving them And in the third, he's speaking to a representative disciple about how he wants his kingdom to progress and how he wants him him to carry it on. And the impressive thing about these incidents is that there is no distinction or gap between any of them. For example, in the last incident... Jesus is telling His disciple how He wants His work carried on after He's gone. No less than instruction about how to carry on His kingdom work. And yet as much time as is spent on breakfast and upon fishing as is spent on the sermon. One commentator says there is no gap here. The gap is in our mind for we make a distinction between breakfast and spiritual work, between fishing on Saturday and worshiping on Sunday. We do that. We make a distinction between the chemistry class and the chapel, between racquetball and religion, between the kitchen and the quiet time, but God does not make that distinction. As you discover with me the care of our Lord, remember its context. Jesus has just accomplished the greatest event in history. He's paid the ransom price for human sin. In just a few hours, He will escape this life of suffering to that incomparable glory. In just a few hours, He'll be ascending into the presence of the Father. And yet He still has thoughts for breakfast and for fishermen and for life. And it's no less than wonderful that this man who in just a moment will ascend into heaven and yet he still has concern for little men fishing and little men's hunger and little men's life. Remember that it happened like this. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. And the other disciples said, we're going with you. You can hardly blame them for they'd had some kind of week. Jesus had taught them so many things in that last hour that it made their heads swim. The material in John 12 through 17 deals with all He taught them the last night. Things about the Holy Spirit, things about servanthood, things about His kingdom, and they were literally, their heads were literally swimming. And all that they had pinned their hopes on, they had seen collapse. They had trusted in Him as the one who would restore Israel. And they saw that Jerusalem was now up for grabs and everything was coming loose. And so they thought, well, we'll just go back to Galilee, get our little familiar boats and get out on the water and bob up and down until our head head clears up. Stop swimming. I guess they should have done what the Lord said, go back to Jerusalem and wait there for me. But 
But nevertheless, when the Lord appeared to them on the seashore, He didn't lean on them. He didn't say as He stood on the beach, All right, boys, beach that boat and line up like some drill sergeant. And He didn't criticize them or... And he saw that they'd toiled all night and caught nothing. So he said, okay, boys, cast on the right side. And they got a net full of fish. And do you see what I'm trying to say? That in the first place, the care of this risen Lord goes all the way down to where we work. He cared about these men and their work and their business. He cared about that. And as I look at our Lord, I discover that all of life is holy to Him. That He makes no distinction between spiritual matters and common things. That all of life matters to Him. That He does care that you're having a hard time making a living. That times are tough and the economy is depressed and jobs are scarce. He does care about the fact and wants you to succeed in your business, for all of life is sacred to Him. most profound thing I've ever read, I think, is that statement by Ian Thomas. I shared it with you before, that when Jesus spat on the ground, He was as spiritual then as when He raised Lazarus from the dead, because He was doing what the Lord told Him to do. Let me just extend that a little bit and say this, that when Peter cast his net on the right side of the boat at the command of our Lord. He was as spiritual then as he was when he preached his sermon at Pentecost. For all of life is sacred to him. It all matters to him. And I think if we could grasp that, that God is concerned about your work, if we could comprehend that, it would send you back to your work tomorrow with a new freshness that you've never known before. One of the first movies I remember seeing was Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Now you can kind of tell by the kind of movies I remember what an exciting life I live, right on the edge of excitement and thrills. You know, for me it's not Eastwood and, and Newman and Nicholson, it's sleepy and grumpy and dopey, you know. And, and, and there's a song in that movie, the first animated cartoon that Disney ever produced. It's Whistle While You Work. One of your top ten songs. And, and a song, you know, the song goes like this. Just whistle a happy tune. It won't take long if you sing a happy song to get your work in place or set in place. Now the thing that strikes me most about that song is that these dwarfs, you know, these guys, when they went to work, they were happy about it. That could only happen in a fairy tale, Right? or in the family of faith. I have read somebody's survey that 52% of the male working force in America hates what they do. So that over half of the people I preach to on Sunday morning sits there and listens to me preach and dreads to get up in the morning and go back to work. Whether it's to the school classroom or to the marketplace, or to, the, or, to the, or, or to the carpenter shop, wherever it is. I know what you're thinking if you're like the rest. You're thinking, tomorrow i got to drag myself back to something I despise. 
But I have met some folks who have found an excitement about what they do, an enthusiasm about their work, who not only enjoy anticipating it, they enjoy doing it. And I found that there is two characteristics from those people present at each one of them. One is an attitude. It is the attitude that this work that God has given me, this work I do, is not labor, but is, vo- is a vocation. The, he, the, the German word is beruf. It means calling. I see my work as a calling from God, or as, as Calvin said, as service to God. And these are the people who see their work as something that God has given them with which or by which they can glorify and honor and praise Him so that they do not praise Him in spite of their work or even within their work. They praise Him by their work. They see their labor, their work, their vocation as something God has given them as a means to praise Him. It's exciting to them. When Vivian Downs died, she left me some of her books. In this collection of books, there is this little classic. I'd heard about it ever since I was in the seminary. Had never sat a print. It's called The Practice of the Presence of God. It's a story about Brother Lawrence who lived in a monastery in the 16th century. And it was said of Brother Lawrence that he had, he had developed an ability to call into his conscious mind in every waking moment, a sense of the presence of God. I wonder how many of you have ever, have you, how many of you have developed that? So that every waking moment of his life, he was conscious of God. And Brother Lawrence spent most of his time as a lay brother washing the pots in the kitchen in the monastery. And this is the secret of how he did that. He said, I discovered that the best way to come to God was in the common task. The man who has found an excitement in his work is a man who has discovered that in his work there is an amazing way for him to come to God. It is a means by which he praises Him and honors Him and glorifies Him. There's a story about St. Anthony, the greatest, the most godly man who ever lived. He was one of the godliest men, one of the holiest, but there was one more holy. And St. Anthony wanted to find this man, this holiest man who ever lived. He wanted to emulate him, copy him. He wanted to find out the secret of his holiness. And so God led him to Conrad the cobbler. And he went to his place of business and he said, I hear that you're the holiest man in the world. He kind of brushed off his compliment with a kind of a, with a, with a timid laugh. And he said, but if you're asking me what I do, this is what I do. I cobble shoes. I mend shoes. And I mend every pair of shoes as if they were for Jesus. And I've discovered a second characteristic in everybody who has found the sanctity of work. It's an appropriation. And I hope you caught the significance of this. Here were these men who fished for a living, who knew where the fish were and where they were not. And there stood a man a hundred yards away on the bank saying to them, Fellows... Cast your net on the right side. They thought it was the Lord, but they were not quite certain of it. They didn't quite catch His voice. They weren't completely sure that it was the Lord. And yet, in the availability of their faith, they did just like He said. And the secret of the catch 
was in the fact that they were absolutely obedient to Him, to His voice, to His Word. The people I have found to find a joy in life in what they do are the people who have said, Lord, whatever you have for me to do, I'll do it. And that man might be a garbage collector going up and down the alleys of Durant, or he might be the most successful man in business in town, but he's found happiness and contentment and fulfillment knowing that he has made his life available to God and he's where God wants him to be. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying that the Lord's care reaches all the way down to your work. Secondly, the Lord's care reaches all the way down to your hunger. Now, when they got on the bank, they saw this man had already prepared a, 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 a fire. The word in the, in, the, in the text is laid. The Greek word means carefully prepared. He made a charcoal fire. Now, I am told that there are two kinds of fire then, a wood fire and a charcoal fire. And the wood fire just took a lot of more effort to get it started. I mean, the, the charcoal fire took a lot more effort to make. You had to blow on it. Can you see the Lord of glory on His knees blowing on a fire? But the reason He made a charcoal fire as opposed to a wood fire is because the fish were more tasty that were prepared on a charcoal fire. I mean, He not only wants them to have something to eat. He wants them to have the best, best breakfast they've ever had. I mean, he's fixing the tastiest breakfast they're ever going to eat. Now, I want you to see this with me. Here is this Lord of glory who flung into space this universe with his word, who has just died a ransom for the sins of many, who is the sustaining cohesion of all that is. And he's down there on his knees blowing on a fire. And he has fish there already prepared. And when they get out and come, he says, Come on, boys, let's have some breakfast. And not only does he fix their breakfast, but the Scripture says that he serves them. So while they're there in a little ring around the fire, Jesus comes with his hands full of fish, a fish sandwich, and he hands Peter a fish sandwich. And Peter takes that fish sandwich to eat it, and when he takes it away from the hand of the Lord, he sees those fresh nail prints there. Can't take his eyes off of them. And he comes to Thomas. Thomas has just said, I'll not believe in the Lord except I touch his nail prints. Hands Thomas his fish sandwich. When he takes that sandwich, he sees fresh nail prints there. Can't take his eyes off of them. That this Lord of glory is bending down to meet their hunger. Why did he do that? Because he knew they were hungry and they were tired and he cares about that. Are you listening to me? Because he knows you're hungry and you're tired and he cares about that. Joseph Brantz was the friend of Martin Luther. Martin Luther got in trouble, so did Joseph Brantz. He incurred the wrath of Charles V, the king of Spain, and heard one day that troops were in town from Spain to arrest him, and so he grabbed a loaf of bread and prayed on the run and fled the city. He got out in the countryside and he found a little farmhouse. He went in the barn that was out behind the, 
the, the, the little house, crawled up in the loft in the, in, the, in, the, in the rafters and hid there. And every morning an old hen got up there somehow, flew up in the attic in the loft and laid an egg right at his feet. Every morning this old hen came, clucked a few times, I imagine, laid an egg. For 14 days that happened to him. Every day he ate that egg. On the 15th day, the hen didn't come back up in the attic, in the loft. He assumed that was God's sign that everything was safe. So he crawled down out of the loft, went home. The troops were gone. I saw the risen Lord caring for His people the other day. I went out to the nursing home and as I started in the room, I heard this woman in there, a little old lady, almost completely helpless. Her roommate is totally bedfast and totally helpless. I heard this little lady saying to her roommate, Okay, honey, eat your ice cream now. Eat your ice cream. And when I stepped inside, there was this lady bending over the bed of her helpless roommate and she had one of these little Dixie cups full of ice cream. And she said to me when I came in, she called her roommate's name and said, Ice cream is about the only thing she enjoys. And, and you have to feed her, she said. And so I, I fed her her cup of ice cream, and now she said kind of with a smile, I'm feeding her mine. Come on, honey, eat your ice cream. And I thought of the Lord beside the Sea of Galilee, gathering His disciples together with nail prints in His hands. Oh, the wonder of it! And He said to these men, Okay, honey, okay, men, Eat your fish. I care about your hunger. I want you to, women to remember that in the morning when you do that breakfast a thousand times you've done it and you fix your breakfast for your man. Just remember that there are, the, the, there are nail prints on that breakfast. And I want you kids to remember that tomorrow when you drag up your chair around the table and you eat that which you take for granted just as I do and remember that the scars of Calvary are upon that meal. What I'm trying to say is that our Lord's concern goes all the way down to breakfast. There's no wonder like that wonder. Sure, He sets up somewhere in heaven and keeps the stars rolling around in space, but the wonder of it is that He bows down to feed us. And one day He took a towel and put it over His arm and knelt at the disciples' feet and washed them. And I tell you, Solomon in all his glory is not arrayed like our Lord when He's kneeling down to fix breakfast. Wash feet. Isn't that wonderful? You can see the excitement just pulsating through this congregation. One last thought, please. He now reaches out to meet the spiritual needs of a man and of, and of men. So he says to Simon, come here a minute, Simon. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't encounter him before the others. He knows how proud Simon is. Off to the side they get, and this is what he says. Oh, he says, Simon, do you love me more than these? And some have suggested that he took his hand and just kind of pointed at the lake and the boats and the nets and said, in essence, this, Simon, do you love me enough to abandon this for me? Because Jesus knew that's what we all need. What we all need is 
the kind of life that fulfills. And there is no fulfillment in life until we come to the place where we're willing to abandon everything to Him. He knew Simon needed that. Somebody said the Lord is not in a hurry. It took Him years to teach me to say two words, Lord, anything. And so he knew that Simon, in order to find the fulfillment that he needed in life, he knows that the only way we're ever going to be happy in life is when we seek him first. And so he said to him, Simon, and to us, do you love me more? Do you love me enough to abandon your life to me? Do you really? Do do you? The only problem, you see, with living for self is... Augustine, Augustine put it this way. He said, Lord, we're, we're restless until we rest in Thee. The only problem with living for self is that you're never happy there. I heard a missionary say that when he surrendered his life to be a missionary, some of his colleagues and friends said to him, Oh, why would you do that? You have such a short life to live. and There's so many dangers there. Are you listening, kids? This missionary said, I looked at him and said, if you're not doing something with your life, it doesn't matter how long it is. And then he said to Simon Peter three times, do you love me? You know why he said three times that? Because Peter had denied him three times. And he was giving him an opportunity to affirm what he had denied. And he's sharing with us and with him that his his forgiveness, his grace is abundant. It reaches all the way down to our sin. It reaches all the way down to our guilt. So that it doesn't matter what you've done in your denial of Him. It doesn't matter how much you have, been, you have forsaken Him. His forgiveness reaches all the way down to that guilt. And He wanted Simon and us to know there is forgiveness. There's a second chance. And then He said something that ought to make us all rejoice. He said, I want you, Simon, to tend my lambs. In the King James, it's feed three times. There's two Greek words. One means to take care of their material needs. The other means to give them much more than that, protection and guidance and deliverance. You know what Jesus was saying? He was saying to us, listen to me carefully. He was saying this, Simon, I want you to know, I want you to be sure and be aware that I never want my people to be without a shepherd. For one day he looked out over the multitudes and was moved with compassion because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. I want to say to you, I want you to hear me. Our Lord will never let us be in a place without guidance, without protection, and without care. And so he said, shepherd my sheep. Now there's some questions that we need to ask ourselves before we get out of this place. The question is, do I really belong to Him? Do I recognize His right to my life? 
Do I respond to His authority and acknowledge His ownership? Do I find freedom and complete fulfillment in this arrangement? Do I sense a deep purpose and contentment because I am His sheep? Mr. Eichmann, do you believe in God? Yes, I believe in God. And I believe that God is concerned about everything I do. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank You for a God who loves and cares for us in such a manner that He wants us to be successful in our work and happy there. He wants us to have the best breakfast we've ever eaten. He wants us to have the fulfillment of ministry and service and the discipline and care of His shepherd. That's how much He loves us. We thank You for Him. Help us to surrender to Him. In Jesus' name. Now, there are three invitations that I invite you to consider this morning. The first is an invitation to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. To come claiming Christ. An invitation to join the church. However, God leads you to come. Maybe you're already you're a member back home where you, you grew up and you want to join the church here and serve God with these folks. An invitation to come this morning to rededicate your life to Christ. Somehow you feel impressed in your heart that you've not been what you ought to be in light of what He is to you. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.